Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we will be looking at issue number 500, June 25th, 1994, £1.75. They've put their prices up. I'm not sure if they put the price up because this is the 500th issue and it's packed full of stuff or or if they've just taken this opportunity to put their price up in the hopes that everyone will buy issue 500 and not notice that they've put it up to £1.75. We will find out, won't we? Let's be honest, 500 issues is quite a huge achievement for a magazine. Um, I think the first Kerrang! was out in 1981. So to make it through to 1994, obviously Kerrang! went on for a hell of a lot longer than that, but that is quite a big achievement. Uh, To celebrate the 500th issue, Kerrang! created something called the Great British Heavy Metal Awards, which are announced this week. The odd thing about what they've done with uh, this issue of the Kerrang!, the Kerrang, this issue of the Kerrang magazine, being a bit formal, are uh, that the um, the awards are announced on page 82, but before that on page 76, the cover stars Bon Jovi are celebrated for their success at the awards, and also on page 23, Geffen Records have a full page ad celebrating 500 issues, and they also announce that they're the proud sponsors of the Kudos Award, which is presented to Ozzy Osbourne. So Kerrang not only run adverts, but also uh, have a cover star story, which basically is spoilers for who's won what of the awards. I mean, uh, you know, Kerrang spoiling themselves effectively here. Uh, I do love it. God bless them. They were probably all very hungover from the uh, from the awards, so you can't blame them for that. If you would like to get in contact with us here at uh, Kerrang Back Issues, you can get us on Instagram at Kerrang Back Issues. You can follow us on Twitter at KerrangPod, and if you'd like to send an email, we can be contacted at KerrangBackIssues at gmail.com. Previously mentioned, about two minutes ago, probably less than that, the cover stars for this week are Bon Jovi. Kerrang! You guys rock! Bon Jovi scooped the big Kerrang! Metal Awards. Also, issue 500. 100 cranium crunching pages of metal mayhem. Guns N' Roses slash Ghost Solo exclusive. The Kerrang! Chronology, The Metal Years, 1981-1994. 34-page monster pull-out, 13 years of metal dissected. Also, behind the scenes at Kerrang!'s Metal Awards. Winners, losers, boozers and schmoozers. Now, because this is the 500th issue of Kerrang!, there is a lot of back patting that Kerrang do of themselves, obviously, as you would expect. And there's also a lot of adverts all the way through Kerrang saying congratulations on 500. But there's also a regular magazine in here, except for singles. Singles isn't included this week. So I'm going to try and read out the usual stuff that you would expect on this podcast, but also try and dig into some of the stuff where they're celebrating 500 years. The first page this week begins with Maiden Metal. Whether it's a question of Maiden pumping out the decibels or the big Kerrang sticking you with the hottest metal action each week, Iron Maiden and Kerrang have grown up side by side. Both have genuinely forged careers that have been made in metal. To introduce the 500th issue of the world's greatest heavy metal magazine, Maiden bass chap Steve Harris takes time out from laying down the irons' his next platter to send us this metal message. And there's a lovely picture of Steve Harris stood next to London Bridge. 500 Kerrangs. That's quite an achievement, although at times it seemed a lot longer. Over the years, every rock journalist in the business seems to have worked there or contributed features. Some have bloody brilliant. Some some have been bloody brilliant. That what Bean wasn't included. The I feel, I have a feeling the editing and copy editing is not going to be great this week. Some have been bloody brilliant, and others have been total wankers, legends in their own minds. Others have been a bit of both. There's been plenty of changes in the rock scene, from the new wave of British heavy metal to glam to thrash to grunge and whatever else is new or rediscovered, and Kerrang has covered it all. Ever since the first issues, the rest of the band and I have read it to see what's happening. You can always bet there will be something worth reading, whether it's good, bad, controversial or completely tasteless. Since Kerrang begin, we've been the subject of many rumours, much gossip and numerous features. Not all of them are complimentary or stuck to the facts, but at least Kerrang cares about rock and presents it to the public, unlike uh, unlike some other weeklies who stick to whatever the current trend in music happens to be. Congratulations on reaching 500 issues, and long may it continue. Cheers. Steve Harris, Iron Maiden. News now, and the hottest news in metal first, it's mayhem. Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash is to start work imminently on a solo album for the Geffen label. 
To be titled SVO Snake Pit, it will be co-produced by Slash and Mike Klink who handle Guns N' Roses' legendary Appetite for Destruction. The SVO stands for Slash's very own, laughed the six stringer when speaking to Mayhem recently. The album will be very heavy and kinda real simple. The best way I can describe this is that it will be like it my contribution to Guns N' Roses, only more solidified. It will concentrate on pure rock and roll and won't have any ballads. Joining Slash on this project will be Guns drummer Matt Sorum, guitarist Gilby Clark and Alice in Chains bassist Michael Innes. This whole idea came about because I was working on material for the next Guns album at my home studio. But then everything had to be put on hold because Axl Rose was dealing with the lawsuits brought um, against him by his ex-girlfriend Stephanie Seymour and his ex-wife Erin Everly. So I thought I'd go ahead and use the songs I've been working on for a solo album. Only now Axl has decided we should start on the new GNR album anyway. So the two projects will be run almost in tandem. Stop Press Whitesnake have lined up some regional shows in addition to the already announced London Hammersmith Apollo Day on July the 18th. David Coverdale and Co play Manchester Apollo July 21st, Newcastle City Hall 22nd, Edinburgh Playhouse 23rd. The support band has been confirmed as Pride and Glory. Scott Rucker's Gun have added a date to their current tour. They play Aberdeen Lemon Tree June 23rd. Ex-Atom C bassist Chris Dell and ex-gun guitarist Alex Dixon have both been confirmed as members of Bruce Dickinson's touring band. News came through on Friday June 17th that Hull bassist Kristen Pfaff has died of a suspected drug overdose. No more details are available at present, but more will be known by the next issue. Record releases and Little Angels, whose final album, Too Posh to Mosh, Too Good to Last, is released this week through Castle Communications. They've lined up some highly small-scale warm-up dates to proceed their farewell tour, but their final single won't be released after all. The intended swan song single, All Roads Lead to You, has been scuppered due to the exclusive track somehow being lost. White label discs were sent to radio stations so the tune can be heard but not bought. The band issued the following statement. We decided that as we could not include any unreleased material, it could be seen as a rip-off of our fans, something we've always been vehemently opposed to. So both Castle and ourselves decided to shelve the single and just concentrate on Too Posh to Mosh. We would like to make it absolutely clear to anyone who hears mention of a single on any radio show that there will not now be an official release of All Roads Lead to You. Biohazard, Brooklyn's fast-rising thug metalers released the first single from their State of the World Address LP on June 27th. Tales from the Hard Side will be issued in three different formats. The cassette is backed with Down for Life, recorded live in Berlin last month. The CD carries a video edit of Tales from the Hard Side, the live Down for Life version, plus a live version of State of the World Address, also from Berlin, plus the LP version of Tales. The 10-inch colour vinyl carries the LP version of Tales, plus the three live Berlin tracks, Down for Life, State of the World Address, and Tales from the Hard Side. Before we get to tour news, there is a one-page advert, uh, which I think has been put out by Terrorvision's record label, and it's a, it's a uh, like a joke reproduction of the Sun. So it's called the Shite, Friday, June fourteenth, nineteen ninety-four, for Tuppence Halfpenny. It's got loads of little bits around it uh, about like buying like the, the latest free Terrorvision albums. But the main headline on this fake newspaper advert is Terrorvision's tears. We was robbed. A Walden Burger Woe for Vision Guitarist. British Rockers Terrorvision having won Kerrang's Award for Best New Band had it stolen from them less than an hour later. The band, fresh from the success of their album How to Make Friends and Influence People and the chart-topping single Oblivion, had just received the award at an industry bash thrown by the top rock magazine Kerrang! and then went on to celebrate at the exclusive West End restaurant St Moritz. Terrorvision guitarist Mark Yates, 23, was in possession of the coveted award when he found himself barred from the restaurant due to him also coveting a can of export celebratory lager. Mark, after politely discussing the issue uh, with the restaurant management, decided to meet up with the band later on and strode purposely towards Oxford Street, lager and award in hand. The sixth stringer, Axman, recalls, I just fancied a walk really and maybe something to eat. Yates finally ended up outside a Burger King restaurant, where after the exertion of walking and not being used to the effect of strong beer, he decided to sit down and rest his legs. He awoke four hours later to find that both the Kerrang Award and the contents of his pockets had gone. He added, it was a complete nightmare. All the years of struggling to make it and when we finally get some recognition, it's gone within the hour. It was terrible having to tell the rest of the band, I'm sticking to Shandy next time. A policeman spokesman rubbish claims of the theft as the action of space aliens and a nationwide search is now underway. 
Tournews and Cathedral have lined up three British dates, despite their lineup remaining unstable. The 70s Disco Doomsters play Stoke on Trent Wheatsheath July 13th, Milton Keynes Walton Holt Centre 14th, London Marquee 15th. The lineup for these dates will consist of Cathedral main men Lee Dorian vocals and Gary Jennings guitar, plus X Pentagram Musos Scott Carlson bass and Joe Hasselvander on drums. NoFX are set to go ahead with their UK tour despite the fact that vocalist bassist Fat Mike has undergone surgery on a dislocated knee. He damaged it by doing one too many jumps at a recent gig in LA with Fishbone. NoFX played the following dates Leeds, Duchess of York, June 27th, Edinburgh, 28th, Derby, Warehouse, 29th, Newport, TJ's 30th, Highbury Garage, July 1st. They also appear on the main stage of this year's Phoenix Festival on July 17th. It used to be cool because we'd all jump around and have a good time, says Mike, who played from a wheelchair in Germany. But now I just have to stand there and it's kind of a drag. Nottingham Rock City and your favourite ludicrous character, Andy Madman Copping, celebrate the 10th anniversary of the venue's rock disco with another of its infamous all-nighters on July the 8th. It will run from 8.30pm to 6am with tons of freebie action and the promise of a few star faces. Rock on down. The Swindon Old Town Bell Hotel hosts a metal-tastic all-day summer special on July the 9th. Warp Spasm Headline, backed by Industry Tips Agent Orange, Core, Whatever, Pollen, Godhead, Punishment Dew, Incubus Succubus, Eva Luna and Honeyseed. The event runs from 1.30pm to 11pm and the admission price is a mere £2. Call Calls for Concern Management on 0793 613 197 for more info. The Glitter Ball, proclaiming to be the only 70s rock night in London, opens its doors again on June 28th. Admission is £3 with a flyer or £2 for students UB40s. Coast to coast now, the hottest US news as it happens. This week, we're with Don K in New York. This week was marked by a huge party at either end. Beginning last Saturday at La Bar Bat on 57th Street with the McGarthy Party, an annual confab where legions of record promotion types get to lick major ass on scores of radio station programmers. It's a six-hour open bar, yes, and this year featured short sets by Degeneration, Gilby Clark and Meat Puppets, and some sort of jam band at the end. The Puppets and Gilby turned in especially solid performances. Also spotted at the party was Dee Schneider, who was there to promote his weekly radio show, Dee Schneider's Metal Nation. Aired locally in Long Island, Dee hopes to syndicate it nationally. He also mentioned that the next Widowmaker album will most likely come out through CMC International. One week later, the Roseland was hosted a Biohazard record release party, which featured a rock-solid set from Brooklyn's metal punk heroes and brief support sets by seven or eight other bands, including 25 to Life, I Hate God, Clutch, Marauder and Madball. Other than Biohazard, for whom the mosh pits extended three quarters of the way to the back of the venue, Madball garnered the best response, especially when ex-agnostic front singer Roger Murray came out to jam with them, his brother is the singer. It was a suitably momentous night for the Bio Boys, who are immensely popular in their hometown. Metallica also pulled into town for a stint at Jones Beach Theatre, a cosy 6,000-seater outdoor venue at the ocean's edge. So what was most shocking about the gig? The inclusion of the god that failed in the set or the sight of Jason Newstead drinking some kind of vitamin milkshake right after? Neither. It was the news supplied by Anthrax bassist Frank Bello attending with Charlie Bernate. Frank's vocalist John Bush has cut his hair, going for the somewhat fashionable Sean look. That makes Frank and guitarist Dan Spitz the only long hairs left in Anthrax. Here's hoping they keep the uh, flag flying. Thanks to New York Seamsters Mike Moses for the news item that Rush drummer Neil Peart was seen in town at the power station to finish work on an all-star tribute album to percussion great Buddy Rich. The album's due out on Atlantic and includes appearances by former Yes drummer Bill Bruford and John Mellencamp Stixman Kenny Aronoff. It's the first outside recording by a Rush member since Geddy Lee sang Takeoff with the McKenzie brothers several years ago. Finally, if you've already grabbed a copy of Kiss My Ass, you may be wondering why Ace Freely's Spaceman image is altered, obscured, or defiled everywhere it appears on the album artwork, apparently in deliberate fashion. Well, there's two stories about this. One source says it's because Ace actually owns the right to his makeup design and Kiss didn't want to pay him for the right to use his image. 
But another source, equally close to the band, says it was simply done because Messrs Simmons and Stanley had no desire to let Ace get publicity off the album's release. Although it seems they've patched up differences with him as of late. There's also a secret message behind the diss tray in the CD version which doesn't add up with all these tales of bad blood. Come on lads, just a uh, kiss and make up, eh? Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts, and the first concert reviewed this week is Gun, live at the Borderline London on Tuesday, June the 14th. This review is by Mark Blake, and this gets electrocution out of five, five out of five. You know when you scale it all down, get away from the huge production, the big PA, all that shit, it just comes back to songs. They're the only thing that really matters with any band. Gun's lead singer Mark Rankin is a couple of hours away from showtime, hunkered down in the Borderline's tiny dressing room, Beer in one hand, he's fired up and enthusiastic. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that, Def Leppertory shrugs. I don't know if it was really us. The band have never hidden behind all that big stage show stuff. We've always had what it takes to get up in a small club anywhere at any time and know that our songs are good enough to go the distance. Tonight is a litmus test for Gun. Support slots to Leopard, Brian Adams and the Rolling Stones gave them mass exposure but didn't result in the sales figures expected for their Taken on the World debut and its 92 follow-up, Gallus. Gun's third album, Swagger, is waiting in the wings and a poster advertising tonight's show builds it as a low-key gig from this young Scottish band, as if someone is hedging their bets against a poor turnout. There was no need to worry. The borderline was impressively jammed and Gun just aren't that young anymore. Something which shows in their supreme confidence and in the case of Mark Rankin, an awareness of what makes a good frontman great. Sniped out in the past for their lack of image, such criticisms now seem misplaced. Minor second guitarist Alex Dixon, his quitting was no big deal, there was no animosity, we just wanted different things. Gunner now a four-piece. New drummer Mark Kerr pilots the rhythm section with considerably more flair than his predecessor Scott Shields. The band's engine is still manned by brothers Dante bass and Jules guitar. Sporting matching Italian football shirts, the brothers flank their lead singer, guitars cocked, eyes scanning the throng, looking like extras from any Martin Scorsese flick. Welcome to the Real World opens the show a little sloppily before the band gather themselves for a new song, Find My Way, with an in excess style free-flowing lyric backed by a prodding guitar line and the kind of sweeping chorus that turns up in all of the best gun songs. Meanwhile, ranking leers, jerks, grabs his knob and exudes a manic energy falling into the crowd at one point and managing to turn a genuine loss of footing into a convincingly rock and roll pose. A lot of people have said that they thought Swagger was going to be a real left-field record, reckons the front man. It's definitely got more of a twist on it than the other two, but even when we got off on a completely new direction, the songs we do still sound like gun songs. It's a sentiment that's even reflected on their new single, a cover of Cameo's 80s funk classic Word Up, where the starkness of the original hit is transformed by Jules' guitar into a monstrous soul metal affair. Rankin chuckles, We've made a great video. It's us playing in a small club surrounded by seven little darlings from a local model agency. Dipping back to the first record, Gun find themselves riding a crowd-pleasing streak. Money, everybody loves her, and Inside Out are still full of iron riffs and buoyant melodies. Uh, put up against a new song like The Only One, a bleak off-kilter affair, their sheer tunelessness is an intriguing contrast but doesn't sound mismatched. We confuse some people, admits Ranking. A lot of rock fans doubted Gun and were never 100% convinced. Maybe because of the popular, popular songs. Five years ago, we looked and sounded out of place in the rock scene. Not anymore. Watching them tackle the rap-rock hybrid of something worthwhile with Dante Gizzy on lead vocals, it's clear to see where Gun should be heading. They still have one foot planted on familiar turf, but tonight's show, like the new album, suggests that the heart of the band actually belongs somewhere a little more left field. Encore Better Days is treated like a long-lost friend. The appreciation is well placed, but there are better songs in the Gun repertoire. Tonight proved that their absence from the live circuit hasn't dampened their energy or their songwriting sus. We want to appeal to everyone, last ranking, but I truly believe we've now got the songs to do it. We can cross over. Our time has come. Next review is for the uh, Reverend Horton Heat at the Halsden Mean Fiddler, London, on Tuesday, June the 14th. Reviewed by Morat, this gets electrocution out of five, five out of five. It has been over a year since the Reverend delivered his last legendary sermon supporting the dwarves. But lo, his flock has increased fourfold and tonight there's a packed house looking for salvation. Punks, skinheads, headbangers, psychobillies and rockers all are here to bow in the temple of shit-kicking rock and roll. And in the beginning there was the baddest of the bad, a song so mean that it rides its own motorcycle. The dance floor goes berserk, at times coming close to spilling over into a full-scale brawl. 
As the Reverend spreads the good word, somehow managing to croon with a cigarette permanently hanging from his lower lip. Hall and Heat, in case you hadn't heard, sound like the Stray Cats would have sounded if they'd been the butthole surfers. This is rock and roll with brass knuckles and a switchblade. Beautifully summed up by titles like Cruising for a Bruising, The Devil's Chasing Me and a poignant love song called Nurture My Pig. And if that's not heavy metal enough for you, they encore with a rendition of Deep Purple Smoke on the Water before cutting back in with that good old devil music. The Good Reverend and his cohorts Jimbo tattooed and drunk on stand-up bass and the Man Mountain Taz on drums have all the vital ingredients for a good night out and much more. Praise be. Gwal, live at the Roseland, New York, Friday, June the 10th, reviewed by Stephen Blush. This gets high voltage out of five, four out of five. Hail Gwal, mutant metalloid mano warriors lost in time. Kiss Army vets gone straight to hell. The legendary Virginia Hellcats have taken theatrical rock to unforeseen levels of absurdity and brilliance. Well versed in classic Alice Cooper stage gore, B-movie sleaze and state-of-the-art speedcore, Gua are the art metal band just waiting to happen, spilling more blood than a million virgins and displaying more disturbing imagery than cable TV ever could. Gua demonstrated better than ever just how and why they've earned their lofty status of one America's most exciting live acts. And all this, despite the fact that they're an utterly radio-unfriendly troupe with no hit songs to date. Hopefully, fortunes will soon change for Sleazy P. Martini, Odorous Urangus, et al. Once their public gets to grips live with the songs from their latest bowel-moving opus, This Toilet Earth, easily the Motley Crue's most cohesive work to date. Describing a guar gig is like trying to describe a nightmare. Gory, fuzzy, violent, and almost too hard to handle. The Guam motor revved into overdrive on a romp of pomp and circumstance. It sounded like worlds colliding with Guar reigning victorious, ugly and beautiful. The final live review this week is Ungui Malmsteen at Rock City, Nottingham, Friday, June the 10th. The review is by Dave Reynolds and this gets a short circuit out of five, two out of five. If only Ungui Malmsteen would concentrate on writing a healthier percentage of good songs rather than let his ego run riot on a tedious number of mind-numbing variations on the same theme under the guise of instrumental burnouts, he'd be taken seriously. His appeal has become uh, more selective than ever. It's still a piss-poor turnout for an artist of international repute in anyone's book. Many bemused onlookers commented that since they last saw him, Ungui had also filled out. He looks like Joe Brand, someone quips. Malmsteen's dressing room rider is pretty conservative. Lots of soft drinks, fruit and a deli tray supplied with the requirement that there will be no roast beef amongst its contents. Still, flab or no flab, Malmsteen proves he's still capable of all his usual trickery, twirling his instrument around like a demon and attacking it vertically, like a cat scratching the back of your three-piece suite. As ever, Malmsteen has surrounded himself with technically brilliant sidemen. Gone are the likes of the Johansson brothers and singer Gorham Edmund. In their place come more faceless replacements, all bar former obsession and loudness vocalist Mike Vercera, little more than a screaming foil to the boss man's theatrics. His voice lacks the commercial accessibility of Jolyn Turner and Jeff Scott Soto, but thankfully isn't quite as cringeworthy as Eva Live. Unfortunately, Vercera is denied the chance to really shine, often having to assist on keyboard duties whilst Ungui tries out another never-ending solo or unbelievably attempts a little blues, even supplying lead vocals himself who does he think he is now? Gary Moore? The serious dramatics of Rising Force rise above everything else in the main set that doesn't uh, smack of Spinal Tap or else holds all the interest of paint drying. So much so it feels like a dream where Malmsteen thanks the crowd and adds, I'm surprised you could stand that dribble for the past 20 minutes. At least that's what I think he said. Still, the emergence of You Don't Remember I'll Never Forget and Heaven Tonight almost make the whole thing worth it. This is what I mean about Malmsteen needing to write more good songs. Both are classics, as is I See The Light. But rather than deliver these just alone and then say goodnight, Ungui can't resist adding more instrumental nonsense and introducing his new wife Amber Dawn to the crowd for the second time. There's a huge collective sigh of relief when he does finally see the light and bugger off. There's no denying that as a guitarist, Malmsteen has talent coming out of his backside. But until he learns how to channel his gift in the correct manner, he's always going to have problems convincing all but the very devoted of his worth. Now we come to a piece in the magazine called Barney Trouble. Are Napalm Death breaking apart? Have the rest of the band had enough of singer Barney Greenway and his obsessions with football and Ungui Malmsteen? 
Jason Arnop gets all the answers straight from each band member as the gods of grime blast Budapest. Budapest, the fine Hungarian capital divided in two by the river Danube. Free of Soviet rule for years now, Budapest looks noble. And always a politically aware outfit, Napalm Death are drinking in the culture during their stay. We found the Kentucky Fried Chicken Place, hoots bassist Shane Embry. Five pieces for three quid. Fucking bargain. Despite the band's sussed image over the years, Embry will admit, I don't know, fuck all. I've got my own politics and don't want to seem like I'm preaching. Some guy asked me in Croatia yesterday what my solution would be to the Bosnia thing. I don't know. Obviously, just stop, for fuck's sake. Napalm Death has two opposite poles in Embry and vocalist Mark Barney Greenway. Embry is the quiet type when sober, still living in Birmingham and fostering an understandable interest in gore movies and Tracy Lord's porn flicks. Barney, on the other hand, is a teetotal vegetarian who lives for Aston Villa and likes nothing more than a good schmooze in London. Barney also finds Ingrid Malmsteen exciting, an attitude clearly not shared by Embry or the other bandmates Mitch Harris guitar, Jesse Pintado guitar and Danny Herrera drums. I find it hard to stomach people saying Ungreed's doing what Deep Purple were doing 10 years ago, when Pearl Jam are doing what bands were doing in the fucking 60s, he argues. The personal sides of Napalm Death are more intriguing than ever. The product of tension is usually ignition, and it's up there on stage every night. So how much friction is there between the members of Napalm Death? How true are the rumours of Rucks over the direction of the current album Fear, Emptiness, Despair? Has Barney driven the others over the edge with his soccer malarkey? Sometimes it's a bit of a pain in the ass, confesses Embry on the Napalm bus, which has endured no less than four accidents on this tour. Not so much him personally, but my mind blocks off when all I hear is Villa, Villa, Villa. No disrespect to him or football, but it seems to have just come out of nowhere. That's kind of strange, but me and Barney still have a laugh. I just can't understand the football thing. I can't see how people can take sports so seriously, shrugs Mitch Harris, the LA kid turned Brum resident who lives for music. It seems like an excuse to fight. If their team loses, no matter how, how good the game was, they're ready to smash things up. Why can't people just accept that their team's a pile of shit? Napalm appeared in A View From The Bar earlier this year, posing at the Villa ground, Barney in full claret and blue regalia. Did he force them to do this? No, says Embry. To be honest, at first I said, bollocks to you. I'm not doing that. But then I thought, fuck it, why not? If it makes him happy, then great. Sometimes when you're in a band, you've got to compromise. He's probably done things that he didn't want to do for us, so we'll go out of our way for him whenever possible. When we play Japan ads, Embry, Barney will be able to go and see a game. On a serious note, Barney's newborn fear of flying caused the band to cancel a few dates in Israel recently. He ferried over for the first date of this tour in Utrecht. It's not something I want to make a big deal of, he murmurs. It seems that everything I've never liked has come together into one big phobia. The main things are vertigo and claustrophobia. I'm a highly strung person and my mind just goes hyper. He insists that the other band members um, were okay about it. They never indicated they were pissed off, although I'm sure they were. Of football, he defends, everyone has their own vices. There's things that I could blag up them about. I get onto Mitch about being fucking drunk all the time and the rest of them sometimes sleeping uh, all day. Football's a way of life for me. It keeps me sane in a way. I had it when I was a kid and it was lost in my confused youth. Music came along. But when everything was back in its proper place, football was back on the agenda. I can honestly say I couldn't live without it. Initially, Barney wasn't happy with fear, emptiness, despair. I've always had the belief that Napalm shouldn't be slaves to governing forces of the market, he explains. There are five members in the band and everyone should have their own say, but sometimes it can fall heavily against one member. It's partly my fault. With this last album, I didn't have much say in the music because I wasn't there. The only danger with Napalm is that it could become too controlled, he, he moles. If it gets too structured, it could lose its potency. He's reticent about any band bust-ups. I don't really want to go into that side of things because it did get quite heated at times. All I can say is that I've grown to like the album. I didn't give it the time that it deserved and there's some good stuff on there, without a doubt. But it could be a bit more fucking mental in parts. Jesse Bintardo and hyperactive energy ball Danny Herrera are the names in Napalm Death that you rarely see quoted. Good humoured types, the pair attended the same school in LA. Last night Herrera had a dream that he was back there driving around with his gang mates. I never did any of that shit but I had friends who carried guns he recalls before laughing. I read a Rollins interview where he said it's easier to get shot in LA than find a good cup of coffee. A lot of people think the old LA game thing is uh, really out of control but a lot of the time they do what they do for a reason counters Pintado. It's hardly ever a random thing, more of a feud. It's still bullshit though. If I wasn't in Napalm Reckons Herrera, I might be loopy by now. Before I went on stage last night, I felt really angry. I wanted to kill someone. After, I felt great. Barney! Comes the deathly growl from a fan peering over the venue's fence. 
Barney's a major deity here, along with the rest of Napalm. One clutch of fans have travelled for two days from Bulgaria to the gig. You're as sad as I am, he informs them, comparing that to his regular 200 mile round trips in the name of football. We don't bathe in the glory, but it's flattering, considers Embry later. Napalm are a popular band, but we don't let it sink into our heads. We're constantly questioned who we are and where we're going. It's really weird, says Barney of the adulation. It makes you wonder, I mean, I was nothing at school in Birmingham, then I was an engineer for two years, joined the band, and now there's 50 kids fucking kissing me. I guess it's because we mutated punk and metal and became the leaders of a scene, if you want to call it that. I hope Napalm gives kids a sense of real association. Embry and Harris are particularly proud of the fact that Napalm have cast off the novelty shackles. We did it off our own fucking backs, growls the bassist. After all the flack we got around 89, we came back and took it three times further. Especially when Mitch and Jesse came into it. We didn't want to abandon what Napalm had done, sis Harris. We wanted to change the way people thought about us. A lot of people didn't take it seriously. The press especially took the piss. There's not much of that now and the rumbling threat of band collapse. Yes, there are differences, but seemingly only of opinion. There's plenty of give and take here. Yeah, agrees Embry. We get along pretty well, far better than we did years ago. So many other bands hate each other's guts and come together purely for the band situation. We haven't got to that point yet and I doubt we will. Up on stage tonight, there is still the most mayhemic whirlwind of a band imaginable. Old and new, songs crush skulls equally well. We come together when we need to, asserts Embry. That's the most important thing. Communication now, and as you know, Kerrang! has reached 500 issues this week. Do any of the readers write in a letter sending their congratulations to them for this huge milestone? No, they don't. Letter of the week. On June the 9th, I witnessed a truly excellent concert. Ungui Jane Malmsteen came to the garage in Glasgow and blew me away. There's no way anyone can fault him and his live performance. However, I never understood why people always slagged Ungui to death until that night. His head seems to be so big, I'm surprised he can get it onto his tour bus. Let me explain. I'm sure others would agree when I say that a major part of going to a gig is to meet your favourite artist afterwards and perhaps get their autograph. But with Ungui, this proved extremely difficult. After waiting for two hours in miserable weather, he finally emerged and shot straight into the tour bus. It took ages for his managers to persuade him to come out. When he finally did grace us with his presence, it was for no more than two minutes. Talk about an ego problem. Bands like Pantera and Sepultura are much bigger than Ungui, but they both know how to keep their fans happy by spending time with us. Malmsteen should learn a bit of this too. After all, he's only human. An ex-Malmsteen fan from Glasgow. Shut the fuck up, Dave Reynolds. Bruce Dickinson's new album is brilliant. Leaving Maiden was the best thing he's done. Maybe you're a big Maiden fan. I don't know. But a 3k rating was not what this excellent album deserved. I admit, change of heart ain't great, but the rest of the songs certainly are. Before you review an album, you really have to study it, not just half listen to it and write the review half-heartedly. Long live Bruce Dickinson, N, an angry Bruce worshipper from Bedford. On June the 10th, I went to Bradford Rios to see Cry of Love. I set out early to make sure I didn't miss anything. Thank God I did. If I hadn't, I'd have missed the best band I've seen for ages, the show openers and stealers guilty these guys know how to rock and they're british to boot with so much corporate money being lavished on bringing us bands to britain when would the record companies and the public wake up to the fact that anything the yanks can produce we could do it even better backstage sue from manchester gagging for a shagging i must say i've seen plenty of sexy girls but l7's donita sparks tops the bill I saw her on a recent Beavers and Butthead show and was Danita fucking sexy to the max or what? Please print a pic of this sexlicious babe for me. Please, please, beg, beg. Jennifer Finch's hair from Essex. Danita's all yours then, editor. What the bloody hell has happened to the Manic Street Preachers? I know James Dean Bradfield probably loves his granny, but why wear the balaclava she knitted him for Christmas in public? He looks like an action man reject. As for the rest of the band, couldn't they afford to pay them, or have they just nailed a couple of corpses to posts? Get a life. Chris Cornell's nasal hair from Fatchen. Having had the good fortune to grab a backstage pass at Donington, I was thrilled to meet Therapy. I found them to be very genuine and friendly, and having had slightly too much to drink and asking some silly questions, I expected to be blanked, as most rock stars would do. Thanks for staying in the real world, Therapy, even if it is crap. Mick Camberwell. What the fuck is wrong with this country? 
We have one of the greatest bands ever, Paradise Lost, and what do we do? We go and sod him well, ignore them. If people would just get their faces out of skins' asses, they'd realise that along with therapy and the almighty, there is some talent in this country. It shouldn't be left to the Europeans to support them. A loyal, lost fan. Short and curlies. Is Psycho Mike Muir having a go at Raging Into Machine in the infectious grooves Do What I Tell Ya or what? Mr. Sarcastic, institutionalised. Donington Monsters of Rock. Bollocks. The annual convention of bottles filled with piss throwers, more like. The Root Vegetable Liberation Front from Coventry. Ill communication. We now come to a commemorative 34-page monster pullout which celebrates 13 years of metal dissected from 1981 to 1994. What Kerrang have done is they go through every single year that they've uh, published the magazine, so that's 91 to 1981, sorry, to 94, I think I said that, and they just go through and basically talk about what they talked about that year in the magazine. It's quite interesting, but it is a hell of a lot of content and it's probably a bit too much for me to read out. Um, there is also a commemorative first issue poster inside, which is the cover of the first Kerrang! with uh, Angus Young on the cover. They also interview some people that have featured in Kerrang! and ask them a few questions. So I'm going to read that out for you. The Kerrang! Chronology. How have the last 500 issues of Kerrang! affected the stars? Malcolm Dome finds out. Abaddon Venom. What were you doing when Kerrang! launched its first ever issue in June 81? Crawling around various shitty graveyards doing photos for your fucking mag. Cat <laughs> breaking up rehearsal rooms. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang! issue 1000 hits the streets? In, 19, uh, in 2004. Crawling around various shitty graveyards. Not. Doing some dodgy deals with some dodgy characters somewhere. What do you like best about Kerrang? It's support of the British rock scene. That and the fact that it never gives overdue space to tiresome American artists. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang? Having to go into a shop and ask for it by name. I normally just ask for any metal mags, but throw the rest away. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? Hughes Thrall from Hughes Thrall and Blasthead by Godforsake. Billy Graziade from Biohazard. What were you doing when Kerrang! launched its first ever issue in June 81? Getting in and out of trouble in high school. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang! issue 1000 hits the streets? If we're all still around, i.e. the human race, I'll read it like the rest. What do you like best about Kerrang! Morat, the true punk and his old band Soldiers of Destruction. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang! It's very hard to get in America. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? There's too many albums to mention just one, and they're not all heavy metal albums. Klaus Eichstadt from Ugly Kid Joe. What were you doing when Kerrang launched its first ever issue in June 81? Riding my bike around, listening to Led Zeppelin doing yard work for $1.50 an hour. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang issue 1000 hits the streets? I guess I'll be trying to hide my growing bald spot. What do you like best about Kerrang? I like the music it covers, and the logo's nice too. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang? It's hard to find in the States. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? Diary of a Madman from Ozzy Osbourne. Nikkei Anderson from Entombed. What were you doing when Kerrang launched its first ever issue in June 81? Smashing up my Paul Stanley Kiss doll worth 5 quid. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang issue 1000 hits the streets? Still smashing up my Paul Stanley Kiss doll worth 100 quid. What do you like best about Kerrang? You feature crap bands like it entombed in it. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang? Can't you see how fucking stupid and embarrassing the whole Norwegian black metal thing is? Give that space to someone who deserves it, instead of Nazi kids who've got nothing whatsoever to do with music. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? Under the Blade from Twisted Sister. Gene Simmons from Kiss. What were you doing when Kerrang launched its first ever issue in June 81? We played a show somewhere on planet Earth. Somehow, it always seems as if we're playing a show somewhere on planet Earth. My guess is playing the Stadia in Australia. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang! issue 1000 hits the streets? We'll be playing somewhere on planet Earth, and probably beyond. What do you like best about Kerrang? Being on the cover. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang? I believe the fans do themselves a great disservice when they call certain subgenres the real thing and all others posers. Better just to say, I like this, I don't like that. All this crap about the real thing points to a very small mindset. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? I don't know, 
Most of the 80s were a waste of time as far as I was concerned, and that included the stuff I was involved in. If you ask me about the 60s, 70s and even 90s, I might hazard a guess. But the 80s? Metallica? Joe Elliott, Def Leppard. What were you doing when Kerrang! launched its first ever issue in June 81? Supporting Rainbow in Europe. What do you guess you'll be uh, doing when Kerrang! issue 1000 hits the streets? Same old, same old. What do you like best about Kerrang? The sarcastic humour. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang? Assholes in the letters page that say we suck, because we don't. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? Apart from our own, Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses, Two Steps from the Move, Hanoi Rocks, and Core Stone Temple Pilots. Nick Holmes from Paradise Lost. What were you doing when Kerrang! launched its first ever issue in June 81? Probably swatting up for my 11 plus exam, which I passed gloriously. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang! issue 1000 hits the streets? Laying on a beach somewhere with a cocktail or in the Betty Ford Clinic or dead? What do you like best about Kerrang? Nice photos and a glossy cover. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about the Kerrang? The words. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? Metallica's Ride the Lightning. John Bon Jovi from Bon Jovi. What were you doing when Kerrang! launched its first ever issue in June 81? I just got out of prison and was working at the power station in New York City. It's a whorehouse. Only kidding. What do you guess you'll be doing when Kerrang! issue 1000 hits the streets? Probably answering questions for that issue and we'll be looking like the Stones. The Flintstones. What do you like best about Kerrang? Miss Peroxide's buxom boobs. I want her. We know you love it really, but what's the worst thing about Kerrang? Miss Peroxide doesn't want me. I'm bummed. Finally, what was your favourite heavy metal album released during the time of Kerrang? No idea. And on the subject of John Bon Jovi, growing up the Kerrang way. To celebrate uh, this 500 issues, Kerrang interviews Bon Jovi. In a 10-year blaze of glory, Bon Jovi has seen and done it all, and Kerrang has been with him every step of the way. To celebrate the band's success at the Big Kerrang Great British Heavy Metal Awards and to toast 500 cranium-crunching Kerrang issues, John Bon Jovi takes Sylvie Simmons on a rollercoaster ride through the dramatic highs and lows of Bon Jovi's rock and roll life, as chronicled in the very pages of the world's greatest heavy metal magazine. Caveat. Do you remember at the start of the issue I was talking about how Kerrang gives spoilers to people that have won the awards? Well, this mentions that they won... Uh, they have big success at the British Heavy Metal Awards. They don't actually say what they've won until you get later on into the magazine. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop my moaning about Kerrang. So there was this guy from New Jersey, right? Used to sweep the floors in a recording studio and had a bunch of bands with names like Ray's and Johnny and the Leeches. He even made a record. R2-D2, I wish you a Merry Christmas for the Star Wars Christmas album. But his musical career was going straight down the road to nowhere until March 1984. That's when a rave review in Kerrang! magazine launched the young John Bon Jovi to the heights of megastardom, or something like that. It didn't hurt that his new band Bon Jovi, John on vocals, Richie Sambora on guitar, Tico Torres on drums, Alec John Such on bass, and David Bryan on keyboards had just released what then Kerrang! scribe Paul Suter reviewed as a magnificent debut. Suter compared the band to Night Ranger playing heavy metal or Journey getting really vicious. Unforgivable really, but he also went um, on quite accurately to predict plentiful sales and success. I remember that review like it was yesterday, says John Bon Jovi, 10 years down the line. He's sitting in his house in Malibu, part of the spoils of one of the most successful rock careers of the last decade. Our A&R guy at the record company was an Englishman, and that review meant so much to him. He told us what Kerrang was. We didn't get Kerrang in New Jersey. As a kid, I used to plaster my walls with pictures from all the American rock mads. Uh, and actually being in those kind of magazines that I used to read religiously was a real big thrill. Like Bon Jovi's first full-length Kerrang! feature a month later, Shelley Harris traced John's beginnings as a cleaner in his cousin's New York studio. I was in the studio yesterday and I still clean up after myself. I was real good at that stuff, laughs John. I could tell you so many stories from 1980 to 1983. The people I met in that studio made a big impression on me. The Bon Jovi experience didn't, however, make much of an impact on Kerrang's Malcolm Dome, who reviewed them opening for the Scorpions in 84. The band was anonymous. The material, bland, unexciting, foot-tappingly monolic stuff tailor-made for US radio airplay. The art of formula manipulation has rarely been reduced to such a mundane level with such spectacularly profitable results. Well, John chuckles, back then, we weren't the live band we are now. I remember that review and that gig. Did it piss you off? No, I always need to take those things with a grain of salt. Don't believe the good ones and don't believe the bad ones. 
I interviewed the band for Kerrang! in October that year, describing you as Steven Tyler without the lips, the unembarrassing, acceptable face of pop metal. So you thought I was a pretty cute for a young boy, John laughs. I can deal with that. When Dante Bonutu reviewed Bon Jovi in October 84, opening for Kiss, he called John a juvenile Steven Tyler, the second Smith comparison in a month. Good, good, good. What can I tell you? Growing up where we did in that era with all the classic Aerosmith stuff like rocks, I would imagine that Tyler certainly did have some influence on my live performances early on, sure. How did that Kiss tour differ from the earlier one with the Scorpions? I remember real well how Gene Simmons would go out of his way to be nice to everybody, and that was quite a thrill because Kiss were bigger than sliced bread in the late 70s. I went to see them as a kid and suddenly we were playing with them. It was cool to tell your friends at home. Even if we weren't making any money and we were sleeping three guys to a room and were practically staying in whorehouses because we couldn't afford anything else. But here we were in England for the first time and Kiss would ask how it was going. It was all pretty wonderful. Dante's rave review declared, Beneath the US stadia poses and the big in Japan looks beats the heart of a true rock and roll band destined for bright light status. And destined for a Dave Dixon interview, the diminutive and semi-legendary Kerrang! Hack was flown to New Jersey to talk to the band about their upcoming second album, 7800 Fahrenheit. But Diddy Dave moaned for three solid pages about the aeroplane, his hotel room and American TV. When he finally got round to mentioning the album, Dixon proclaimed it markedly heavier without sacrificing the melodies that made the first so appealing. And he quoted then-manager Doc McGee stating that John was so into playing live he'd play a pay toilet and use his own change. I remember that quote, and it was true. That was the thing with the band. We would play anywhere and with anybody. We had that attitude of fuck it. McGee booked us seven nights a week, 300 days a year, and he did. Kerrang reviewed the Fahrenheit album in May 85. A pale imitation, wrote Howard Johnson, of the Bon Jovi we've got to know and love. That's my least favourite album in retrospect, John admits. You have your whole life to write your first album, and then you have six weeks to write the second one. When we made that record, there were five of us sleeping together in a two-bedroom apartment. My dad would come down every couple of weeks with a big pot of spaghetti and some mattresses. It was like The Godfather. When that record came out, we thought, this feels good. We like it. But it could and should have been better. We were still growing up. In the summer of 85, Bon Jovi opened for Rat on the US arena circuit, then played their first British headlining tour. John brought his mum and dad to see him at the London Dominion. Due to a series of technical difficulties, the sound kept cutting out, at which point the enterprising John invented Unplugged by coming out with an acoustic guitar. I remember that real well, I said. Make a lot of noise because my parents are here in the audience and they'll think that we're famous in England. Chances are, had the juice not blown three or four times that night, it probably wouldn't have been such a wonderfully historic gig. In September 86 came the big breakthrough. You Give Love a Bad Name soared into the singles charts, following closely behind was the Slippery When Wet album, which went to number six in Britain and number one in the States. Dome gave it a 4.5k review. The dusky gypsy soul has rarely been more lovingly mapped out than here, he wrote. In fact, his only moan was why the white snakeness of the album title. John contests that White Snake were a big band in Europe, but they barely existed in America. Believe me, they weren't an influence on the title. If anything, that came from the strip bars in Vancouver where they recorded the album. We lived in those joints. And there was a slippery when wet street sign on this hill going up into the mountains of Vancouver where we went for this fucking awful photo session where we all looked like girls. That was so fucked. We thought, do what you do in New Jersey. Put on your jeans and t-shirts again and fuck these people. When we realised that all we can be is us, there was born one of the biggest records of all time. They may have had one of the biggest records of all time, but they were having a hard time getting into Big Karen Cartoon Strip Pandora Peroxide. In October 86, a cartoon drum begs Pandora to let him in, since she'd already let in Motley Crue and Rat singer Stephen Percy. No, says the imperious blonde. In your interviews, you don't say bitch or anything revolutionary enough for me to send up. There's just nothing meaty on you to grab hold of. You're hardly Stephen Piercy in that department anyway. The cartoon John pleads, How about the fact that I'm an ultra-sweet guy who brushes his teeth regular and shows sincere concern for his music and his fans? Yep, John did have a too-good-to-be-true image. For example, he didn't beat up Malcolm Doan or Stephen Percy. I guess I do still have that image to an extent, John shrugs. It's funny that you have to defend yourself and go, I'm sorry I didn't do heroin. I'm sorry I didn't kill anybody today. You know, Rat crucified us on that tour. Then the years went on and we grew up and we, we became really good friends. And on the Keep the Faith tour, Stephen got signed again with Arcade and I took him out with us. I like to think he's a friend of mine. I certainly befriended the rest of the guys as the years went on. 
August 1987, with the sales of Slippery When Wet standing at 8.5 million, they're set to headline Donington. In my interview with John, I remind him of his first Donington appearance in 1985, when he ran around like a maniac to avoid the piss bottles thrown at the stage. That first Donington was actually a good gig for us. You're in that great poise to happen slot, and then we came back and we headlined, and I was ready to die. We shouldn't have been there. I was really too physically ill. I should have enjoyed that period of my life, but I didn't get the chance because of the huge explosion of the Slippery album and that tour and our desire to go, 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 go. We were burned. I couldn't sing and we looked like death. The powers that be should have said, fuck it, go home, sleep for six months. That was a shame because I don't look back on that Donington fondly, and I should have. During his next Kerrang! interview in December 88, John discovered why Metallica had refused to jam with the Jovies at Donington in 87. Bon Jovi had flown helicopters over the stage during Metallica's set and the San Franciscans were mightily pissed off about it. John reflects, Metallica were in the middle of their set and we were on the helicopter going, holy fuck, what a cool day. You're headlining your biggest show, you've got Gene and Paul of kissing those two helicopters that say Bon Jovi on the side of them and you're basically whacking off in this plane. I didn't know what was going on, neither did the band. I certainly didn't know it was ruining Metallica's show. So I walk over to Lars and James and go, hey, would you guys come up and sing with us at the end? We're going to do American Band. Needless to say, they didn't come up. It was a year later that I found out what the situation was. It's 1988. Slippery When Wet has sold 15 million copies. The band presents its follow-up, New Jersey. The Big Kerrang's Phil Wilding dubs it very mediocre. What can I tell you, John holds up his hands. I think Living In Sin and I'll Be There For You are really good songs. Some of the others aren't the greatest songs, but Lay Your Hands On Me is a big audience favourite. But by 89, the Bon Jovi machine was still rolling on relentlessly. They headlined the Moscow Peace Festival and a huge bash at Milton Keynes Bowl. John told Kerrang's Alison Joy the Times called us the Beatles of the 80s. Another review in The Sun dubbed Bon Jovi clean-shaven tripe. The Sun was also half-inching a lot of items from the mighty Kerrang's gossip columns at the time, like Richie Sambora's romance with Cher, supposedly. It pissed John right off. No, John laughs, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Here he was dating Cher, who relates all the way back to the power station days when I worked in the studio, and I always thought she was a very sexy woman. Here we are working with her, and before you know it, Richie's really working her. I used to get a kick out of it. I'd ask him all the gory details. One thing about Cher, whenever she was out with us, she acted like one of the guys in the band. She never had any star trips. She's a classy chick. Boy, she could deal with the president tonight and the road crew tomorrow morning. Hey, he chuckles. I meant in a social manner. Then of course there was the Kerrang! rumour picked up by America's National Enquirer that John had threatened to fire Tico and Alex if they didn't lose weight or get liposuction. That was a good one. Alex still weighs about £125. He'll never be fat. I never knew what the word liposuction was before then. It was really funny. But John wasn't laughing when the 300th issue of Kerrang! appeared on the newsstands in July 1990. John had just released the solo soundtrack album Blaze of Glory which was selling like crazy but he was mightily pissed off. Things were not happy in the Bon Jovi camp. John said, There have been rumours in Kerrang that John and Richie had fallen out big time, that Tico was leaving, that the band was breaking up. Truth is, said John, Kerrang started this whole fucking fiasco. A lot of things have been printed out of context and that did add fuel to the fire. Kerrang has definitely done a few things through the years, like the Skid Row incident, when they didn't call me for verification or anything regarding the Skid's acrimonious battle with Bon Jovi over royalties. That period in our career was definitely a dark time. We were physically and mentally exhausted. We did those two really big records back to back and we toured religiously. It's not until now, four or five years later, that you realise why we were so burned and what it was that was burning us. Did the huge success of Blaze of Glory piss the rest of the band off? I think in their heart of hearts they were worried that there wouldn't be a band anymore. It built my own confidence to know that I could write number one songs by myself and play with guys like Jeff Beck and Elton John. It was a big coming of age period for me. But what was missing was the camaraderie. It was pretty lonely because we really did hang out together. Those stories weren't bullshit. So we got back to that in 92. In 92, John told Kerrang's Dave Reynolds we got rid of our manager, the whole machine. It was a way for me to try and keep the band together. We lived for it. Paul Elliott's October 92 review gave the Keep the Faith album a piddling 3Ks. He basically said that in a post-Nirvana world, Bon Jovi had been forced to update their image and sound to the point of nicking U2's The Fly for the title track. If he had said sympathy for the devil, I would have admitted to it. We did update the sound. There's no doubt about that. We took a lot of chances in the production and everything. Some of the gambles worked, some didn't. Blame it on the love of rock and roll definitely didn't, according to Paul. On this track, Bon Jovi sounded old and rich and cynical and crap. John groans. What can I tell you? I still like that song. It was different. Everything. The video. The look. Me cutting my hair. It was me going, fuck it. 
Just get rid of everything that isn't worth having anymore. And if it failed, it failed. But it was worth taking the chances. And as the 17-month Keep the Faith tour wound up at the end of 93, Stefan Shirazi interviewed the band in Argentina. Although Bon Jovi albums and tickets have been selling like condoms at an orgy in more out-of-the-way places like South America and Thailand, where Kerrang reported on thousands of fans mobbing them at the airport and rioting at the shows, things hadn't gone that well for them in America, where the alternative bands had kicked them into the sidelines. Point blank, you were not hippie in the US anymore, said Stefan. It took Europe to recharge the sapping band morale. John says now, summing up, we were definitely the band you'd point out when you thought about the 80s. There's no doubt about that. When the record came out in America and it didn't come in at number one, people were very quick to say it was over. Was I worried? Probably, yeah. But it was like, if it's done, it's been a pretty good 10 years. It took two or three singles to get it up over 2 million in America, which isn't too bad for a failure. Like I said, he laughs, we ain't dead yet. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? Records now, and the first album re- reviewed this week is Sky Valley by Caius. This is reviewed by Don K, and this gets four Ks. Nearly a year after its recording, the new Caius album finally emerges on Electra Records. While their former label Chameleon went under, casting several acts into limbo, Caius's raw power was undeniable even at the major label level. Fans of primal, ultra-heavy sludge rock will be thankful that Sky Valley didn't fall victim to the power plays of the corporate music industry. This album simply oozes. It oozes maximum volume, brutal heaviness, cryptic mysticism and glorious retro ambiance. Guitarist Josh Homme is one of the few around who really knows how to get the most distorted, fuzz-polluted, protean sounds out of his acts. And the result is so huge. It sounds like dinosaurs stepping on your head. It's not clear whether songs like Odyssey and the ethereal Space Cadet are real tales of spiritual revelations in the desert or just some weird Palm Springs sense of humour. On the other hand, the monstrous shuffling Super Scooper and Mighty Scoop and Demon Cleaner do indicate a bizarre sensibility at work here, but it fits perfectly with the musical attack, which is relentless and pummeling, yet cosmic and spaced out at the same time. Masters of Reality frontman Chris Goss is once again at the production helm, and he knows exactly the sound Caius are looking for. Sky Valley is the blues played on hallucinogenics while travelling through hyperspace. It's Grand Funk's Red Album, if Grand Funk had known how to sing and play their instruments. It's simply the biggest fucking sound around in 94. The next album reviewed is an album entitled Smash by Offspring. The album is reviewed by Paul Rees and this gets 3Ks out of 5. One of those West Coast punk bands who are determined to build their whole career around three chords and a pinhead chorus. Offspring are about as original as a photocopy. Thankfully though, this devastatingly simple mix is propped up by an endless supply of hot rod energy, dimwit humour and terrace chant tunes. Weighing in with the moronic bounce of the Ramones and the yobbo melodies of say bad religion or social distortion. Smash wallops out 13 boot boy blasts without coming up for air. Dip into it absolutely anywhere and you'll get the same rush of spazzed out guitars, gobstopper drums and hooligan vocals. The opening Time to Relax almost falls over itself as it storms out in a blur of road drill riffs. Instead it tumbles into a gangland chorus that's so effective. Offspring use it at least 9 more times, which really doesn't matter when you've got songs like Self Esteem and Genocide firing away like an illiterate stiff little fingers, but sinks like a stone in the stodge of Come Out and Play and Not The One. Still. As intellectually challenged as it undoubtedly is, Smash at least goes at it like the Energizer rabbit on steroids. Free case for Smash, I'm just going to put this in here. Uh, I think that's a bit unfair. I still rate this album. I think this album is absolutely brilliant. Start to finish, every song is great. Uh, We know what happens with this album. Smash goes on to sell an insane amount of records worldwide. Millions and millions of records. Same with um, Dookie, which was reviewed in Kerrang! and got 4Ks. And and obviously, look, you can't judge an album from its first time of listening. And obviously the reviewers are busy and they probably can't get into an album like we can or like we did from knowing an album later on. I just think that 3Ks is ever so slightly unfair. Anyway. Hard Times in an Age of Quarrel. This album is by Chromax and this gets 3Ks. The review is by Morat. Yeah, you read that right. Just three Ks for one of New York's finest hardcore outfits, which, since this is a double live opus, translates as four Ks for disc one and two for the other fella. 
Both kick off with the obligatory intro lifted from A Clockwork Orange, but from then on, despite a lot of the same songs such as Show No Mercy, Down But Not Out and Hard Times appearing in both sets, the differences will glare out at any hardcore fan like a bored cop. This one you see was recorded in 1991, when the band, complete with bassist vocalist Harley Flanagan, had more teeth than a sprocket factory and were harder than a bag of old toffees. This too, minus the tattooed one, was recorded in 1994 when, quite frankly, the band are shite. Regardless of the Flanagan situation, there just seems to be a lot lacking in the Cro-Mags' performance. They are suddenly just a hardcore band and nothing more. To be fair, that 94 offering is thicker, tighter and all those things are supposed to count. But if you were into the near-death experience, Opus, Are You Deaf? Then doubtless you'll love this too. But for my money, the band are now well past their sell-by date and it shows. Putting the two albums side-by-side side was doubtless designed to prove otherwise, but I know which disc will wear out first. We now move on to the results, results, the awards for the first great British heavy metal awards. They came, they saw, they schmoozed, and they most definitely boozed. Yeah, boozers, Kerrang's first star-studded great British heavy metal awards ceremony, which took place on June the 13th, went off with the biggest bang since uh, the Big Bang itself. Held at London's Notre Dame Hall just off Leicester Square, the whole caboodle hosted by Big Kerrang Beer Monster Cumhead Itter. What? Monster Cumhead Itter? I don't know what Crane's talking about there. Phil Alexander kicked off around 4pm and rocked well into the night. After the ceremony, an unsightly assortment of Kerrang Clansters, Stars, Friends of the Stars and the odd set of nobodies repaired to Soho's notorious walking hole, the St. Moritz Club, to round off a glorious day of gonzoid metal action by downing several gallons of devil juice. Over 300 VIPs crammed themselves into the sweaty, neo-gothic confines of Notre Dame Hall to witness what rapidly turned into the hottest, not to mention drunkest day on the metal calendar this year. With the likes of Jack Daniels, Black Death Vodka, Death Cigarettes, K-Cider and of course our mates from Carlsberg all helping us to celebrate the healthy state of metal and 500 glorious issues of Kerrang. It was bound to end in tears, or at least with a kind of hangover whose heaviosity could only be measured on the Richter scale. The highlights of the evening are almost too numerous to mention. There's Ozzy's acceptance of the Kerrang Kudos Award, which literally saw him lost for words, with the crowd affording him a standing ovation. There's Brian May, sporting a ludicrous set of clogs and a suicidal tendencies shirt while presenting Joe Elliott his Kerrang Award, the first in the Lep's illustrious career. Would you believe it? Then there's Fluff Freeman's presentation speech, or the fact that Therapy's Michael McKeegan hadn't slept the night before the awards in anticipation of the full-on metal-mongous excitement of the event. We could go on. Thankfully, we won't. That is until next week, when the bar will bring you the full scam on the sordid antics that followed in the early hours of the morning. Till then, over and out. So the winners of this, finally we get to it on page 84. The best new British band are Terrorvision, sponsored by HMV and voted for by readers of Kerrang. The best alternative metal album is Therapy's Trouble Gum, voted for by the readers of Kerrang. The best international live act are Bon Jovi, sponsored by JBL, voted for by the readers of Kerrang. The best video is Paradise Lost and Ember's Fire, sponsored by MTV's Headbangers Ball and voted for by viewers of MTV's Headbangers Ball. The best British live act are The Almighty, voted for the, by the readers of Kerrang. The album of the year is Chaos AD by Sepultura, voted for by listeners of Radio 1 FM's Sunday Rock Show. The best new international act are Pantera, voted for by readers of Kerrang. The best British band are Def Leppard, voted for by the readers of Kerrang. And the Kerrang Kudos Award goes to Ozzy Osbourne, sponsored by Geffen Records and voted for by the Kerrang staff. The Creativity Award goes to Aerosmith, sponsored by Sony, voted for by the Kerrang staff. And the Monsters of Rock Award goes to Peter Grant, sponsored and voted for by promoters MCP. Lovely. And that concludes this week's episode of Kerrang Back Issues. I really enjoyed that one. 500 issues is actually quite a huge milestone um, for any magazine, really. Um, sorry again that I couldn't read out the huge 34-page pull-out bit in the middle. If anyone really wants to read that or see anything from that, I can always um, send you pictures. It's, it is actually really good. Um, and it's definitely, definitely worth a look at of what was going on in 1981 up to 1994. Next week in Kerrang, 
Metallica, killer eight-page live blowout. Life After Guns N' Roses, Gilby Clark LP exclusive. Kiss, Flashbomb Fever Revisited. Plus, a savage live onslaught with Blind Melon, Motorhead, Helmet, Prong, Dio and L7. Thank you so much for listening and we will be back next Wednesday as per usual. Um, Hope you're all doing well out there. Hope you're looking after yourselves and we'll talk to you soon. All right, bye for now. Cheers.